can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country. And the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, train, train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism. We're taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com where you'll find all the back episodes. you find a link to send me a message. You'll also find a link to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone. This is titled, You Counter Trumpism by Ending the Conditions Which Created It, Not With Authoritarian Policies. You can find Caitlin at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. The U.S. political media class have been pushing hard for more authoritarian policies to stave off the threat of, quote, domestic terrorism in the wake of the Capitol riot. President Biden, who was already working on rolling out new domestic terror policies well before January 6th, confirmed after the riot that he is making these new measures a priority. Political internet censorship is becoming increasingly normalized. Anti-protest bills are being passed. And now we're seeing liberals encouraged to form digital armies to spy on Trump supporters to report them to authorities. And an amazingly large percentage of the U.S. population seems to have no problem with any of this, even in sectors of the political spectrum that should really know better by now. What else can we do, they reason? What other solution could there possibly be to the threat of dangerous fascists and conspiracy theorists continuing to gain power and influence? Well, there's a whole lot that can be done, and none of it includes consenting to sweeping new Patriot Act-like authoritarian measures or encouraging monopolistic Silicon Valley plutocrats to censor worldwide political speech. There's just a whole lot of mass-scale narrative manipulation going on to keep it from being obvious to everyone. The same kind of uh, influences that get people to believe in those conspiracy theories, those same kind of levers and buttons, as Utah Phillip puts it, that are, are built into us and built up within the system we live in, particularly the political economic media that we live in in the United States and in other countries, are the ones that both promote the conspiracy theories and promote the solution, the authoritarian solution, to quote-unquote solve or oppress those uh, negative tendencies that they that they otherwise support. 
The way to stem the tide of Trumpism, or fascism, or white supremacism, or Trump cultism, or whatever term you use for what you're worried about here, is to eliminate the conditions which created it. Trump was only able to launch his successful faux populist campaign in the first place by exploiting the widespread pre-existing opinion that there was a swamp that needed draining, a corrupt political system whose leadership does not promote the interests of the people. Conspiracy theories only exist because the government often does evil things and lies about them with the help of the mass media forcing people to just guess what's happening behind the opaque wall of government secrecy. People only get it in their heads that they need a trustworthy strongman to overhaul the system if the system has failed them. People who are actually interested in ending Trumpism would be promoting an end to the corruption in the political system, an end to the opacity of their government, an end to their uniquely awful electoral system, and an end to the neoliberal policies which have been making Americans poorer and poorer with less and less support from the government which purports to protect them. But these changes are not being promoted by the U.S. political media class because the U.S. political media class speaks for an empire that depends on these things. Without corruption, the plutocratic class couldn't use campaign donations and corporate lobbying to install and maintain politicians who will advance their interests. Without government secrecy, the oligarchic empire could not conspire in secret to advance the military and economic agendas which form the glue that holds the empire together. Without a lying mass media, people's consent could not be manufactured for wars and a system which does not serve their interests. Without widespread poverty and domestic austerity, people could not be kept too busy and politically impotent to challenge the massive political influence of the plutocrats. And I'll, I'll diverge here a little bit that this specific conspiracy theory was not universal in its appeal to people that are left behind by the system. You can see that in the type of people who participated in what I like to call Kuachella. Um, they were not they were not the the primary uh, people impacted in the worst ways by our current system. They weren't the poor. They weren't people of color. They weren't the people that are, are totally failed by this system who live in poverty. They were wealthy white people, many of whom with influence and platforms that they can uh, express themselves in the social media space at the very least if not leaking over into the uh, commercial media space. And I think that's because they, they were impacted twofold. They were impacted by this specific conspiracy theory perpetrated by Q or QAnon and amplified by uh, similar folks. 
and their leader, their solution was a racist white supremacist solution. So that by itself helped define who would be impacted by this particular conspiracy theory and who would who would believe what what QAnon was spewing. So it's really interesting to make note of that, that while there are many, many dispossessed, many, many people left behind, grossly harmed by our economic system, our political system, that it was not a cross-section of those people in this instance that participated. So the option of stopping the rise of Trumpism by changing the system is taken off the table, which is why you never hear it discussed as a possibility in mainstream circles. The only option people are being offered to debate the pros and cons of giving of is giving more powers to the same corrupt system which created Trump, powers which will be under control of the next Trumpian figure who is elevated by that very system. You're not going to prevent fascism by creating a big authoritarian monster to stomp it into silence. And even if you could, you would only be stopping the fascism by becoming the fascism. To stop the rise of fascism, you need to actually change drastically. Believing you can just make it go away without changing your situation is like believing you can avert an oncoming train by putting your hands over your eyes. There is no valid argument against what I am saying here. Saying the powerful won't allow any positive change is just confirming everything I'm saying and confirming the need to remove the powerful from power. Saying that ending the corruption, government secrecy, and injustice would just be giving the terrorists what they want would be turning yourself into a bootlicker of such cartoonish obsequiousness. There aren't words in the English language adequate to mock you. Yes, change is desperately needed. Yes, the powerful will re resist that change with everything they have. But the alternative is letting them plunge the world into darkness and destruction. We are going to have to find a way to win this thing. Next up is a piece written by Margaret Flowers. This is published at popularresistance.org. Violent right-wing forces have been activated. It requires strategic action to stop them. Since the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6 by right-wing Trump supporters, the fallout has been rapid. The Democrats, both elected officials and voters, were quick to jump on the impeachment train. Some elected officials are calling for members of Congress who supported the events to resign and to refuse to seat them in the new Congress. Employers are firing employees who participated or supported the events. And people on the left are cheering on social media censorship and calling for stronger laws to go after domestic terrorists. It is important in times of crisis like this to pause, take a deep breath, and think about the ramifications of our responses given the present makeup of the U.S. political structure. It is also necessary to look past the events of January 6 to the conditions that created the environment in which this type of action could occur and what it will take to change them. 
The inauguration of President Joe Biden on January 20 is not the end of the era referred to as Trumpism. Violent right-wing forces have been activated, and they are not going away unless major actions are taken to divide them and remove the material conditions that gave rise to them. That is our task going forward. What happened in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January was not a surprise. Trump supporters had rallied in D.C. twice after the election, and each time they were violent, particularly against black people and others opposed to police violence. Businesses in downtown D.C. were boarded up and closed in anticipation of the demonstrations on the 5th and 6th. Police advised D.C. residents to avoid the downtown area, and that is what Black Lives Matter D.C. decided to do, staying in their communities to keep everyone safe. The DCist describes the events of January 5, when Trump supporters rallied in Freedom Plaza for eight hours. Claims of electoral fraud were widespread. Tuesday night, Trump supporters fought with police. Ten of them were arrested, some on gun charges. Popular resistance field reporter John Zangus covered the events at the Capitol on January 6. He described police on the west side trying to hold the Trump supporters back from entering the building using tear gas and flashbangs. As police blockaded the entrance, Trump supporters broke windows and entered the building anyway. Elsewhere, Capitol Police were filmed letting the Trump supporters through the bicycle rack blockades, beckoning them inside and standing by as they entered the building. There are photos of police taking selfies with Trump supporters and reports of them providing directions to people who entered the Capitol. Some of the Trump supporters were police officers who showed their badges, and some were members of the military. It is clear that the Capitol Police failed to prepare for the violence that occurred that day, despite advanced warnings. They have had stronger responses to nonviolent protests in the past that completely blocked access to the Capitol. The events at the Capitol clearly demonstrated what was obvious throughout the protests this past summer. The police identify with and ally with white supremacists, including their militias. The Brennan Center report, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy, and Far-Right Militancy in Law Enforcement, issued last August details that the FBI and Department of Homeland Security are well aware of these connections. They write, quote, The harms that armed law enforcement officers affiliated with violent white supremacist and anti-government militia groups can inflict on American society could hardly be overstated. Yet, despite the FBI's acknowledgement of the links between law enforcement and these suspected terrorist groups, the Justice Department has no national strategy designed to identify white supremacist police officers or to protect the safety and civil rights of the communities they patrol. The Brennan Center report called for swift action to remove white supremacists from law enforcement and other policy changes. Yet, Despite months of President Trump and others claiming electoral fraud and riling up the base, plus violent assaults on state capitol buildings, the federal government failed to take action to prevent harm. The Partnership for Civil Justice Fund is calling for a full investigation into the police's actions that day 
and holding those who, quote, condoned or colluded with the violent mob that attacked the Capitol accountable. It is critical that those who are responsible for violence against people and threats of harming or killing elected officials are held accountable. But it is just as important that what happened is not used to further strengthen the repressive apparatus of the state. Evan Greer warns that Biden, the architect of the 1994 Violent Crime Bill and Law Enforcement Act that led to mass incarceration, is already calling for a domestic terrorism bill, even though domestic terrorism is currently illegal. Greer writes, quote, More money, weapons, and technology in the hands of the Department of Homeland Security, an agency complicit in human rights abuses long before Trump took office, won't stop the rising threat of right-wing violence. Instead, it will be used to suppress legitimate dissent and disproportionately target black and brown activists, Muslims, immigrant communities, and social movements that effectively challenge systemic injustice and corporate power. So inevitably, it will be used against the people that are fighting the white supremacists, that are fighting those conspiracy theories that lead people to harm other people. So it will be counterproductive. This is the situation in which we live. Most often laws that increase surveillance or policing are used against vulnerable communities and don't keep them safe. The same goes for censorship. Many cheered when President Trump was banned from Twitter and Facebook. But do we really want private corporations silencing online speech? Both Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald warn us against starting down this slippery slope. And similarly, there have been social media posts cheering that people who attended the pro-Trump rally were fired from their jobs for being there. At present, employers across the country are seeking out and firing employees who attended or showed up or showed support for the assault on the Capitol. It's one thing if an employee broke the law, such as illegally entering the Capitol. It is another to be present at a march which is protected by the First Amendment. Again, we must be aware that in the current environment, precedent set by the response to this action at the Capitol will be used against other people in the future. Economist Jack Rasmus predicted the events on January 6 would be designed to create chaos as part of a long-term strategy by Trump supporters. Trump was certainly aware that he could not actually conduct a coup, and legislative bodies are not typically the target of coup attempts anyway. Rasmus argues that Trump will work to split the Republican Party, driving the moderates out and further cementing his base. He may even behave similarly to the strategy used by the United States to try to conduct regime change in Venezuela. Claim an election is fraudulent, refuse to accept the results, and run a parallel government. The era of Trumpism does not end with the inauguration of Joe Biden. Joe Loria of Consortium News calls January 6, quote, a dress rehearsal for what may well turn into a full-blown insurrection. He urges that steps be taken to prevent this, but he doesn't offer suggestions as to what they should be. 
This weekend, I spoke with Brian Becker of the Answer Coalition on the podcast Clearing the Fog about what steps would be effective. In addition to holding those who broke the law and law enforcement who assisted them accountable, it is important to hold President Trump accountable. Rather than impeachment, which is what the Democrats are doing and what they and their voters have championed since President Trump was elected, the president needs to be investigated by an independent body in the Department of Justice and prosecuted for his crimes. Impeachment when Trump is on his way out the door will only deepen the political divide and embolden him with his base. He can continue to rail against the Democrats for unfairly targeting him. On the other hand, a prosecution and possible conviction will remove him as a leader figure for the white supremacists and weaken them. In addition to that, it is fundamental that we change the material conditions in which people live. The blame for the situation today lies squarely with both the Democrats and Republicans. They are responsible for decades of policies that have created great economic insecurity, which has been exploited by the right to drive racism, xenophobia, and fear. The United States government has failed its people in every way through neoliberalism and the funneling of wealth to the top 1%. This is especially egregious during a recession and a pandemic when tens of millions of people have lost their jobs and health insurance and are at risk of losing their homes. And over 400,000 people have died. Instead of moving with urgency to impeach Trump, Congress should show the same urgency to pass national improved Medicare for All, a guaranteed basic income that brings everyone above the poverty line, erasure of debt and investment in an eco-socialist Green New Deal that creates millions of high-quality jobs while repairing our failing infrastructure, building a green economy and addressing the climate crisis. This can be funded by significant cuts to the military budget and through a wealth tax, as well as reclaiming the government's ability to print money. These are actions that will begin to bring prosperity to the people and heal the divisions. There is more that needs to be done to end structural racism as well, by ending mass incarceration, removing racial bias from law enforcement and the judicial system, employing transformative justice, and changing school curriculum to be less Eurocentric and more multicultural, to name a few. In the end, our goal needs to be the development of structures that empower people-centered human rights. Finally, we must recognize that our struggle is global. What the United States government has done to its people by denying them what they need to live a life of dignity is what the United States has imposed upon people around the world through economic sanctions and military domination. The tactics used by President Trump to try to hold on to power through lies and violent right-wing actors are the same as the U.S. uses around the world to overthrow governments. This needs to stop. And as Vijay Prashad and Noam Chomsky write, the world is facing existential crises that demand international cooperation to protect our future. All of these are winnable, but none of them are going to come without a struggle.
President Biden has already signaled that he will rule to the right of center, and his cabinet picks signal business as usual. Democrats in Congress are already watering down their bold rhetoric used during Trump's term. They are calling for lowering the age of Medicare instead of Medicare for all. And their call for $2,000 checks have, for many, turned into $1,400 checks for people who are unemployed instead of recognizing that many workers are still living in poverty. Our future depends on organizing in our communities to demand what we require and not letting the Democrats tell us we are asking for too much or that we can't have it because, quote, this is a time for unity, as they usually do. The crises we face are severe and the right-wing violent backlash is real. We have to stop them with bold solutions that work. The period of plutocracy must end. And here's a piece published at CNN.com, written by Bernie Sanders. This is the agenda Democrats should pursue under Biden's leadership. The headlines dominating the news understandably deal with the outrageous behavior of President Donald Trump and the attempted coup he inspired at our nation's capital. Yes, it was important for the House of Representatives to impeach Trump. Yes, the Senate must convict him. No president now or in the future can lead an insurrection against the United States government and get away with it. But as enormously important as that is, we must not lose sight of the pain and anxiety of millions of working families all over this country as they suffer through the worst public health and economic crises in the modern history of our country. In fact, many working families are facing more economic desperation today than any time since the Great Depression. As a result of the pandemic, tens of millions of our fellow citizens have lost their jobs and incomes. Hunger is at its highest level in decades, and 40 million could be on the brink of eviction when the federal moratorium expires at the end of January. And I believe at this point, Biden has extended that uh, into the future by at least a few months. While more than 24 million people in our country have tested positive for the COVID-19 virus, tens of millions of Americans are uninsured or underinsured. Amid so much economic suffering and despair, when many Americans have lost faith in their government, and when millions are prepared to accept lies about the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, it is imperative that Democrats pass a bold and aggressive economic agenda within the first 100 days of Joe Biden's presidency. Now is not the time to think small. It is the time to think big and restore faith among working families black, white, Latino, Asian American, and Native American, that in a democratic society, government can respond to their needs. Failure to adequately respond to the economic desperation in America today will undermine the Biden administration and likely lead Democrats to lose their thin majorities in the House of Representatives and U.S. Senate in 2022. Democrats suffered significant losses in 1994, two years after President Bill Clinton's victory, and in 2010, two years after President Barack Obama's victory. 
we must not repeat those mistakes. The danger we face would not be in going too big or spending too much, but in going too small and leaving the needs of the American people behind. If Republicans would like to work with us, we should welcome them, but their support is not necessary. In 2010, Senator Mitch McConnell was willing to sabotage the economy to advantage Republicans, doing everything he could to make Obama a one-term president. We cannot let him play the same games again. The Senate's 60-vote threshold to pass major legislation has become an excuse for inaction. But let's be clear, we have the tools to overcome these procedural hurdles. As incoming chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, I will use a process known as budget reconciliation that will allow us to pass comprehensive legislation with only 51 votes. This is not a radical idea. When the Republicans controlled the Senate during the George W. Bush and Trump presidencies, they used reconciliation to pass trillions of dollars in tax breaks for the wealthiest people and most profitable corporations. They also used reconciliation to try and repeal the Affordable Care Act in 2017. Today, Democrats must use this same process to lift Americans out of poverty, increase wages, and create good-paying jobs. First, we must increase the direct payments passed by Congress in December from $600 to $2,000 for every working-class adult and their children. On this issue, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, incoming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, several Republicans in the House and the Senate, and undoubtedly millions of struggling Americans who wanted more stimulus in December would agree. But given the enormous crisis facing our country, that is not enough. Through reconciliation, we must pass a major COVID relief package that expands emergency unemployment benefits to $600 a week, provides aid to state and local governments to prevent mass layoffs, enacts hazard pay for frontline workers, saves the U.S. Postal Service, addresses the crisis of homelessness, and ensures that no one in America goes hungry or is evicted. During the crisis, we must provide emergency health care to all by requiring Medicare to pay the medical bills of the uninsured and underinsured. We must fully fund COVID-19 testing, tracing, and vaccine distribution. At a time when our primary health care system is faltering and when millions have no medical home, we must also substantially increase funding for community health centers and the National Health Service Corps, which provides scholarships and forgives student debt of medical professionals who agree to work in underserved areas. Through reconciliation, we must make sure that unemployment benefits during this crisis period are not taxable so that workers don't get hit with a huge tax bill they didn't expect on April 15. Moreover, we need to create millions of good-paying jobs by rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure, our roads, bridges, sidewalks, schools, water systems, and affordable housing. Further, as we lead the world in combating the existential threat of climate change, well, I think we have to, to change where we're at in order to do that, but I know that's your proposal, we can create millions more jobs by making massive investments in wind, solar, geothermal, electric vehicles, weatherization, and energy storage. 
We must guarantee at least 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave and end the international embarrassment of the United States as the only high-income nation that fails to provide paid maternity leave, also failing to require sick leave for every employee. In order to address our dysfunctional early childhood education system, we must provide universal pre-K for every three and four-year-old in the country and greatly expand child care. And if we are to have the best educated workforce in the world, we need to make public colleges and universities tuition-free and cancel all student debt for working-class Americans. As we do all these things, we can use the reconciliation process to substantially lower the outrageous cost of prescription drugs and raise the minimum wage to $15. Not only would these provisions improve life for millions, they would save the federal government hundreds of billions. In this extraordinarily difficult moment, poll after poll has shown that the American people want government to respond aggressively to address the crises they face. The job of Congress now is to listen to the American people, move our country boldly forward on a path to economic success, and show voters that Democrats are prepared to do everything possible to improve their lives. This is an unprecedented moment in American history. We must act in an unprecedented way. And unfortunately, the Democrats are probably not up to the task. They've never shown in the past, perhaps with a, a brief um, hiccup uh, during the uh, FDR days, during the Great Depression, um, the Democrats have never shown that they are interested in changing the course of American society, the economic system, the, the media, the political system. They've never shown as a group that that's what they're after. Next up, a piece published at Newsweek.com. This one written by David Sirota. David Sirota has his own media outlet as well now. It is called Daily Poster, uh, where they do a lot of great um, investigative pieces into both the Democrats and Republicans and uh, a lot of the dirty deals that go on behind the scenes. In fact, they had a piece that I was considering for this episode about... Um, Biden's health care plan and how much of it was or some of it was lifted from uh, industry documents like industry lobbying letters. This piece is written by David Sirota once again, published at Newsweek.com. Can Joe Biden succeed where Barack Obama failed? Twelve years after Joe Biden was sworn in as the vice president of Hope and Change, Hope is in short supply, and the need for change is even more acute. Progressives have a rare opportunity to enact their agenda, but they will need to play the kind of hardball they have backed away from in the past, because Biden continues to send conflicting messages. For every promise of transformational change, he signals a desire to appease Republican Party intent on destroying his presidency. The stakes could hardly be higher. 
One out of every thousand Americans has died from a lethal pandemic, with no end yet in sight. The economy is officially still humming along, but millions face eviction, bankruptcy, and hunger. Even U.S. democracy is under unprecedented siege by an insurrectionist movement encouraged by the outgoing president and his loyalists in Congress. The path forward is difficult to envision amid the fog of culture war, political war, and the threat of actual, real-life civil war. But it is clear that Biden is at a crossroad and still unsure which way to go. He can follow his boss, Barack Obama, who pursued bipartisanship, comedy, and compromise, accommodating corporate power, or he can break towards the path of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who did battle with oligarchy, stood down fascism, and welcomed the hatred of the rich. One thing he cannot do is try to go in both directions. The lesson of the Obama administration is that you can have appeasement or transformative progress but you almost certainly cannot have both. Obama won the 2008 campaign despite being falsely branded a foreign-born socialist bent on racial redistribution, and he assumed office in a similar cauldron of division and destitution. America's psyche was battered by the Iraq War, and our economy was shredded by a financial crisis that ruined millions of lives. It was his FDR moment which he used not to forge a new deal that rebalanced the relationship between capital and labor, but to prop up the status quo instead. Obama backed his predecessor's bank bailout program, but then terminated it in the name of deficit reduction rather than redirect it to aid struggling homeowners. He pushed a stimulus bill, but one that was far too small, which ended up delivering one of American history's slowest economic recoveries. He promised a change from a Bush administration that had tried to privatize Social Security, but then formed his own commission to try to slash the program. He championed slightly more liberal version of Republican health care reform, but steered clear of a more contentious fight for a public health insurance option or Medicare for All. He touted getting tough on Wall Street, but his administration refused to prosecute bank executives, refused to force financial institutions to accept mortgage losses, and refused to break up the biggest banks. And he effectively shielded the George W. Bush administration from any systematic investigations into its Iraq War lies and its lawless torture regime out of, quote, a belief that we need to look forward as opposed to looking backwards. Kind of the, uh, the, the, the the type of language that Joe Biden is using, wanting to reach across the table to the Republicans. Through it all, Obama enjoyed the adoration of liberal voters and the acquiescence of congressional progressives who often refrained from a confrontational with the Democratic White House, even when Obama's administration was steamrolling their agenda. In constantly seeking common ground with the GOP, Obama may have expected some friendship in return. Instead, they gave him few congressional votes and offered even fewer words of praise. Then they delivered a midterm shellacking that effectively ended the possibility of transformational change. Obama would later write that he avoided a crackdown on Wall Street because that might have, quote, 
required a violence to the social order. God damn. The existing social order is a violence on many people in our country. That reverence for the status quo and deference to Wall Street after the financial crisis and housing meltdown ultimately helped create the backlash conditions for the rise of Trump. One data point suggested a direct linkage. In one-third of the counties that flipped from Obama to Donald Trump, there had been an increase in the number of residents whose home mortgages were underwater in 2016, according to a study by the Center for American Progress. Quote, We would not have Trump as president if the Democrats had remained the party of the working class, University of California Irvine professor Bernard Grothman recently told the New York Times. Obama responded to the housing crisis with bailouts of the lenders and interlinked financial institutions, not of the folks losing their homes. And the stagnation of wages and income for the middle and bottom of the income distribution continued under Obama. A decade later, it's unclear what Biden gleaned from his experience with Obama. At some moments, he appears to finally be leaning away from his decades-long record as a budget-cutting fiscal hawk, instead campaigning to expand Social Security, then embracing the idea of $2,000 stimulus checks, and most recently declaring that, quote, we should be investing in deficit spending in order to generate economic growth. And yet at other moments, he has done the opposite. He initially urged Democratic lawmakers to accept a stimulus plan with no stimulus checks, and tellingly, eight days after a violent right-wing uprising at the U.S. Capitol had eviscerated the GOP, he resuscitated and rewarded the party by signaling that even though he needs no Republican votes, he would rather cut a deal with them on his first stimulus legislation than use ruthless legislative tactics to pass a more robust bill with only Democratic support. This version of Biden mutes the calls for bold action and reflexively praises the GOP. He has asserted that once Trump is gone, Republican leaders would have an epiphany and suddenly learn to work together with Democrats. He has also reportedly suggested he is not interested in investigating the outrages of the Trump administration. He has continued to say, quote, we need a Republican Party. And he recently promised that, quote, I'll never publicly embarrass GOP lawmakers. But that is the paradox. In a narrowly divided Congress, Biden almost certainly will not be able to make major public investments if he is co conflict-averse. Passing a bold agenda will likely require an epic confrontation with the Republicans, who are already girding for obstruction. After years of profligate tax cuts and spending, GOP leaders are suddenly pretending to care about the deficit, and if history is any guide, they will renew their efforts to block the changes to environmental and labor laws that Biden has promised are forthcoming. The left is correct to fear Biden getting too cozy with Republicans. 
His record working with the GOP was marked by collaborating with segregationists against school busing, supporting the Iraq War, and pushing to cut Social Security. And it's not hard to imagine Biden now finding common ground with Mitch McConnell on the latter. But this is where progressives must learn their own lesson from the Obama years. Rather than once again offering deference to a first-term Democratic president, they must press Biden to reject an attitude of appeasement, move him into a more confrontational posture, and urge him to see the first few months of the Obama era as a cautionary tale rather than a guidebook. They have already had some initial success doing that. They successfully pressured him to start supporting the $2,000 survival checks. Quote, We've got to pass the infrastructure package. We've got to do the $2,000 checks. We've got to do a whole bunch of things with a 50-50 Senate and a pretty slight margin in the House, said Wisconsin Democrat Representative Mark Pocan, a former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. I hope we don't do what we did when Barack Obama first got elected and try to have kumbaya a little too much with everybody and not get things done in that little period of time we had. We really have to act and use the very tight margins we have very swiftly in order to get these things done. Yeah, with with the narrowness, with the split Senate, 50-50, and with the narrow margin in the House, the Biden administration and the Democrats have, at best, at, at most, two years they can rely on to have the power that they need to make changes. After that, bets are off. If they do not succeed, in fact, if they do not succeed to pass meaningful, fundamental change in their first year, most likely they will lose their advantage after two years in the midterms. And the Biden administration will be a one-term administration and they'll lose power entirely to the Republicans. If, if, if the people don't believe that things are changing, that things are moving in a different and better direction, they're not going to support what's happening. This will require the kind of shrewdness, discipline, and intestinal fortitude not typically seen from the left in decades. Grassroots groups will have to get comfortable pressuring the new administration, even if the White House doesn't like it. Democratic lawmakers will have to be prepared to clash with Biden, even when he is trying to talk them down with, quote, come on, man, here's the deal, and other sweet nothings. And this is a, the... One of the biggest problems with the Obama administration was coming out of George Bush, going into Obama, the, the soft left, the, the progressives, and those a bit left of center in the Democratic Party, and not even in the party, but in organizations, major organizations that, that push for positive change in our country, all gave them a pass. All were deferential to to Obama, um, did not push him hard, did not fight him, did not battle him to be better, and therefore helped cause the failure. They were afraid to stand up 
and say, hey, don't be an asshole. Hey, do the right thing. Because the fear that Democrats hold over their heads and anyone's heads who, who don't support them is, hey, you don't support what I'm doing, you're going to get the Republicans. Um, and, you know, that that is a real fear. But when the Democrats aren't doing shit, when the Democrats are doing mild, uh, uh, softer form, then they are not enough better than the Republicans that it makes a fundamental difference in everyone's life who's in charge. The good news is that progressives are better positioned for this fight that they have been, than they have been in years. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party remains powerful by virtue of its ties to big money. But polls show it has lost the argument in the contest of ideas. Many Americans want big change and want it now. And progressive Democratic lawmakers are fortified by a grassroots, grassroots funding base, better political infrastructure, and name-brand leaders. In the House, the Progressive Caucus has dozens of members and is revamping its rules to be more cohesive voting bloc so that it can leverage power in the narrowly divided chamber. Already, the group, led by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other members of the squad, persuaded Democratic leaders to reform budget rules to make it easier to pass landmark initiatives like a Green New Deal and Medicare for All. They can also reject the look-forward, not-backward attitude and instead press to invoke the Congressional Review Act to rescind a slew of last-minute Trump regulations designed to weaken protections for the environment and workers while undermining the fight against climate change. In the Senate, Progressive Senator Sherrod Brown will lead the Banking Committee. In the aftermath of the financial crisis a dozen years ago, he championed an initiative to break up the largest banks. It was stymied by the panel's then-chairman, Chris Dodd, with an assist by the Obama administration. Now Brown is in a position to resurrect the idea, knowing it could generate bipartisan support, and in recent days he signaled an eagerness for aggressive action when he said, quote, Wall Street doesn't get to run this entire economy, and reiterated his call for breaking up the big banks. Meanwhile, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders will chair the powerful Senate Budget Committee. He will be able to set federal spending priorities and also be in a position to use the arcane process known as reconciliation to try to circumvent the Senate filibuster for big-ticket items, such as the one he recently floated, an emergency program to extend medical coverage to anyone during the pandemic, whether or not they have existing insurance coverage. During the Obama era, Democrats often declined to wield their power. They did not use budget reconciliation to try to enact a public health insurance option, for example, and they did not employ the CRA to repeal budget era to repeal Bush era regulations. By contrast, Republicans during the Trump presidency used reconciliation to pass his giant tax cut for the wealthy and weaponized the CRA to scrap 14 Obama regulations. Sanders understands the imperative of using every tool possible to make change. Quote, We have to act with a boldness that we have not seen in this country since FDR, he told NBC News. If we do not, I suspect that in two years, 
we will not be in the majority. Biden campaigned for the presidency, promising to restore a pre-crisis normal, but that is not enough to pull America back from the abyss and stave off the surge of authoritarianism today, just as it was not enough during the Great Depression. Back then, Roosevelt seemed to appreciate that business as usual would not stave off fascism and rescue the country. Much, much more was required. Quote, There must be an end to, to a conduct in banking and in business, which too often has given to a sacred trust the likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing, he said in his first inaugural address. Restoration calls, however, not for changes in ethics alone. This nation asks for action, and action now. Those words ring true in this moment of peril. The best hope for America is not a vapid Biden pain to the soul of this nation, but a Biden administration that is pressed by progressives to take action and deliver real material gains to the working class. If that does not happen then a new right-wing authoritarian will likely ride another wave of anger at the continued inequality, destitution, and dysfunction, and that the next menace is likely to be even more dangerous than Trump. And, and, and that fight's going to be hard, and it's going to be long, and it's going to be likely to fail, but it has to be taken up at every, at every opportunity we need to be pointing out the flaws in the Biden program that are not taking bold enough action and pushing for and supporting bold action wherever Democrats are attempting to take it. Because Biden has proven with his picks for his cabinet and leadership in, in the, uh, the department's that he's not looking for bold action. Those people that he has chosen, by and large, come from the industries that those uh, cabinet departments, those executive departments, are set to oversee. In that instance, it is a little different from any of the previous people in charge. Just for one example, Trump's Secretary of Defense was Mark Esper, who previously, among other, other positions, previously had been a lobbyist for Raytheon. Biden's choice for uh, leader of the Department of Defense sat on the Raytheon Board of Directors. So that's the one example among many examples of people coming from the industries that uh, our government is often dealing with into leadership positions on the in the agencies that deal with them. Next up, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, an earlier story alluded to our foreign policy and its parallels with the reactionary actions and the reactions to those actions that we've seen in events like January 6th, Coachella. This piece is written by Margaret Kimberly, 
It's published at blackagendareport.com. There needs to be a soul-searching and truth-telling about invasions, interventions, coups, and sanctions that are far more destructive than the Trump lovers could ever be. The attack on the United States Capitol was yet another trauma created by the election of Donald Trump to the presidency. The scenes of his supporters literally breaking down the doors and causing members of Congress to flee or seek shelter were not the images that Americans want to connect with their country. Of all the reactions created by the riot, defense of American exceptionalism is the most pervasive, but also, unfortunately, the most damaging. Many of the people and institutions now bemoaning the state of the republic have given Trump and his predecessors the green light to subvert democracy around the world. Donald Trump has committed the unforgivable sin of making people here feel less proud of their country. Angry mobs storming seats of power are for, quote, shithole countries and banana republics. Of course, the United States undid the popular will in nations like Guatemala because the United Fruit Company didn't want a government that would work on behalf of the people and not on behalf of their interests. Even the expression Banana Republic conveys acceptance of the imperialist narrative. Let us remember that Donald Trump has waged war using economic sanctions against Venezuela, Syria, Cuba, Iran, Nicaragua, and other countries. So as, as you hear Trump and his supporters boast, Trump didn't get us into a war. That's not entirely true, depending on your definition of war. Did he start a new war? Did he bomb a new country? I don't even actually know the answer to that. He, he did not engage in a direct bombing assault, a major new direct bombing assault starting a new front that I am aware of. There might be some examples out there. However, in Iran, in Venezuela, in other places, he imposed the harshest sanctions regimes, which are part and parcel of many a war. It is a tactic of war. So in in the event, in in, in he was beginning wars in countries. He, he goaded Iran. He prodded. He poked. He instigated. He did assassinations, both directly with Soleimani and indirectly with Israeli support of um, Iranian nuclear scientists, among others. He engaged in war with Iran. It wasn't a, a, a army versus army. It wasn't a um, you know air force versus air force. It wasn't it wasn't uh, dogfights over Iranian territory. It was incursion by drones. It was constant spying. Uh, these are acts of war. Um, even if the bombing by U.S. planes was not common. Let us remember that Donald Trump has waged war using economic sanctions against Venezuela, Syria, Cuba, Iran, Nicaragua, and other countries. Their citizens suffer from lack of food and medicine as a result of this aggression, and the physical and economic infrastructure of these nations are severely impacted. Destruction is the goal, after all. 
Yet millions of people are aghast that what happens in other countries might now happen to them. Just a few days before the Capitol riot, a recorded conversation between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State was leaked to the media. Trump can be heard demanding to have an additional 11,780 votes counted on his behalf in order to win that state. The bizarre effort wasn't a new tactic for Trump. It was akin to what he did in Venezuela. His administration declared Juan Guaido the president of that country and connived with 50 other nations to recognize the unelected usurper as well. Not only do presidents undo democracy around the world, but they are supported in these efforts by corporate media and the political duopoly. When protesters instigated by the United States and surveillance state cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy, one of the most destabilizing forces in the world, ransacked the Hong Kong Legislative Council. Hmm. How could that, ha where could that happen? Where, where could a, a, a force of people be instigated into attacking a Congress building? Hmm. When the protesters uh, ransacked the Hong Kong Legislative Council, they received words of praise from the same members of Congress who ran from the Trumpian mob. Even supposedly progressive members of Congress don't step out of line when the U.S. decides who should govern faraway places. When asked where she stood on the coup attempt against Venezuela, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, quote, I defer to caucus leadership on how we navigate this. A combination of right-wing reactionary racism and political cynicism led to the debacle on Capitol Hill. Outrage is justified, and so is any punishment that can be meted out to Trump before he leaves office on January 20, 2021. There also needs to be soul-searching and truth-telling about invasions, interventions, coups, and sanctions that are far more destructive than the Trump lovers could ever be. All the living former presidents have made statements condemning Trump and his minions, but none of them should escape scrutiny. George W. Bush should not be allowed to opine on the MAGA marcher's vandalism without being questioned about his lies which led to the invasion of Iraq and the deaths of one million people or the kidnapping of Haitian President Aristide. Barack Obama destroyed Libya and tried to destroy Syria and created an ongoing humanitarian crisis. Bill Clinton supported Boris Yeltsin's 1993 attack on the Russian parliament. The Russian parliament? Hmm. Where have we seen tactics like that in which a parliament building or congressional building or a legislative building has been attacked? Bill Clinton supported Boris Yeltsin's 1993 attack on the Russian parliament, which resulted in the deaths of more than 100 people. He intervened in Russia's 1996 election to keep Yeltsin in office. Nor should foreign leaders who act as U.S. puppets be allowed to point fingers. NATO is a proud member of America's crime syndicate, and Justin Trudeau, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, and others gladly work with the U.S. to undermine other nations. 
They shouldn't be permitted to wring their hands about damage to democracy when they act as junior partners in crime when Washington tells them to do so. The United States is not a beacon of democracy or shining city on a hill. Euphemistic nonsense that hides criminality must be tossed out in favor of truth-telling. This moment of crisis is not the time to sweep dirt under the rug. Scrutiny should begin at home, and the acceptance of U.S. interventions in the rest of the world must end. And if, if this is what we did, if we had reconciliation with our history, recent, distant, every atrocity we've perpetuated, if we laid them bare, if we explored them, if we tried to understand them, if we saw the evils that they were, we would be able to prevent ourselves or our government from continuing down the same path. And we'd be able to change our public's impression of our understanding of who we are as a country, who we really are as a country, the next piece I think is going to dive into that a little bit more, and we'll be able to restore trust, accountability. It comes back, all comes back to accountability. We as a people in the United States and our government that we have elected and supported have never been held accountable for the evil things that we have done and do. Until we are, until we can hold ourselves accountable, until we can sit in that global circle and raise our hand and say, hi, I'm the United States and I've committed horrendous atrocities. We can't change our course. Finally, a piece from Ibram X. Kendi. This piece is published at TheAtlantic.com. Denial is the heartbeat of America. When have Americans been willing to admit who we are? Quote, Let me be very clear. The scenes of chaos at the Capitol do not reflect a true America, do not represent who we are, President-elect Joe Biden said during Wednesday's siege. Quote, the behavior we witnessed in the U.S. Capitol is entirely un-American, read a statement from a bipartisan and bicameral group of elected officials that included Senators Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, and Mark Warner, as well as Representatives Josh, Josh Gothheimer and Tom Reed. And I have to diverge here for a bit because Josh Gothheimer is my representative. And 
on on many many policies he's an asshole i'm not speaking of him personally i'm speaking of what he believes in and what actions he takes um he he's a uh either a right-wing democrat or he's a republican he is a founder with i believe tom reed of the quote-unquote problem solvers caucus which is essentially a group of centrists in the house of representatives that have as their underlying theory that republicans and democrats working together are the only only group that will effectively be successful and that's what they do and he very frequently, um, maybe very frequently, is overselling it on some very important items. He breaks with the Democratic Party to get a more centrist or more right-wing solution than might otherwise be put forward. So, in that sense, he's an asshole for his actions. Again, not for who who he is. Um, I think we. I think it's important that we judge other people especially our elected officials by their actions and what they do and call them out for it but i think it's also critically important that we don't personalize that and and you know unless someone's uh moving across certain lines like white supremacism like overt white supremacism white supremacism has underlying uh uh aspects in in many many places but overt white supremacism and anti-Semitism and, and, and homophobia and those types of things, if people have personal convictions about those things, then you, I think we are justified in having an opinion about them personally and not just based on the actions they take. But, but words are also actions of a sort. Digression over quote we're the united states of america we disagree on a lot of things and we have a lot of spirited debate but we talk it out and we honor each other even in our disagreement said senator james lankford a republican from oklahoma and while we disagree on things and disagree strongly at times we do not encourage what happened today ever quote that's not who we are, Senator Ben Sasse said. Quote, this is not the America I know and love, Representative Brenda Lawrence said. Quote, I know this is not our America, Representative Ed Case said. Quote, this is not who we are, Representative Nancy Mace said. Quote, this is how election results are disputed in a banana republic, not our democratic republic. Republican former President George W. Bush said, quote, This is a national tragedy and is not who we are as a nation, Democratic former President Jimmy Carter said. Do these statements represent the American dream? Is the American dream the great delusion about what America is and who Americans are? To say that the attack on the U.S. Capitol is not who we are is to say that this is not part of us, not part of our politics, not part of our history. To say that this is not part of America, American politics, and American history is a bald-faced denial 
but the denial is normal. In the aftermath of catastrophes, when have Americans commonly admitted who we are? The heartbeat of America is denial. It is historic, this denial. Every American generation denies. America is establishing the freest democracy in the world, said the white people who secured their freedom during the 1770s and 80s. America is the greatest democracy on earth, said the property owners voting in the early 19th century. America is the beacon of democracy in world history, said the men who voted before the 1920s. America is the leading democracy in the world, said the non-incarcerated people who have voted throughout U.S. history in almost every state. America is the utmost democracy on the face of the earth, said the primarily older and better off and able-bodied people who are the likeliest to vote in the 21st century. America is the best democracy around, said the American people, when it was harder for black and native Latino people to vote in the 2020 election. At every point in the history of American tyranny, the honest recorders heard the sounds of denial. Today is no different. Americans remember and accept the enfranchising of citizens and peaceful transfers of power as their history, while forgetting and denying the coup plots, the attempted coups, and the successful coups. White terror is as American as the Stars and Stripes. But when this is denied, it is no wonder that the events of the Capitol are read as shocking and un-American. In March 1783, Continental Army officers plotted mutiny against the Confederation Congress until George Washington convinced the officers to remain loyal. In 1861, pro-slavery insurrectionists assembled at the U.S. Capitol to stop the counting of electoral votes for Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, you know that guy, Abraham Lincoln, the guy that the Republicans hold up as, you know, their their forebear, the one person in the Republican history that they can call on and they can they can hold up as exemplary. Yeah. Pro-slavery insurrectionists assembled at the U.S. Capitol to stop the counting of electoral votes for Abraham Lincoln. The Civil War came, lasting until 1865. White terrorists laid siege to the county courthouse in Colfax, Louisiana, on Easter Sunday, 1873, and violently overthrew the local parish government, massacring roughly 150 black people in the process. September 14, 1874, the White League violently attempted to overthrow the newly elected governor of Louisiana in the Battle of Liberty Place in New Orleans. White terrorists rioted, destroyed ballot boxes, and intimidated, wounded, and murdered black voters in Alabama's Barber County on Election Day in 1874, securing victories for their candidates. In 1898, white supremacists murdered dozens of black people and violently overthrew the democratically elected and interracial government of Wilmington, North Carolina. In 1921, in one of the most devastating economic coups in history, white supremacists murdered hundreds of black residents of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and destroyed their prosperous Greenwood district, known affectionately as Black Wall Street. That was 1921. That was 100 years ago this year. 
1933. Financiers attempted to persuade President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to hand over power so they could establish a fascist government. This is a small sampling, but are all the attempted and successful coups in American history not part of American history? And, quite frankly, side note, they are not. They are erased from American history. It is only really hard work and determination that brings back any memory of these things. The um, 100-year-ago attack and assault and destruction of, quote, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, if, if it was mentioned in my history education, it was a sentence. It was, it was a, a side note. It was not something that was taught to be learned from. If it was in there at all, I don't remember it. I learned about it two or three years ago. Not 30 or 40 years ago when I should have been learning about it and it would have helped uh, make me who I believe I am much earlier in my life. The denial runs through America like the Mississippi River system. I guess after Senator Harry F. Byrd of Virginia called for massive resistance to desegregating schools on February 25, 1956. Those were not Americans who mobbed school children and college students from Little Rock, Arkansas to Boston in subsequent decades. I guess those weren't Americans who beat, jailed, and slaughtered the Americans waging the civil rights, anti-war, black power, brown power, red power, yellow power, women's liberation, and gay liberation movements from the 1950s to the 1980s. I guess their badges and Bibles and American flags weren't American. But distant history is one thing. Has American denial blinded Americans from seeing what has happened in their country over the past year, in states across the land, on social media apps across the internet? Donald Trump has been attempting to incite coups since April 17, 2020, when he tweeted, all caps, Liberate Michigan, Liberate Minnesota, Liberate Virginia, and save your great Second Amendment. It is under siege. Armed and unarmed people gathered in state capitals in Michigan in April, Idaho in August, South Carolina in September, and Oregon in December, over COVID-19 restrictions, and white terrorists plotted to kidnap the governors of Michigan and Virginia last year. On January 6, 2021, as the siege occurred at the U.S. Capitol, officials in several states, including New Mexico, Georgia, and Colorado, evacuated state capitals to protect against the gathering mobs. The crowds on that day breached the gate to the grounds of the governor's mansion in Washington state. All of this evidence, all of this, and still some say that people, these people, are not part of America. Their anti-democratic politics are not part of American politics. The long history of coups is not part of American history. Denial is the heartbeat 
of America. A 2018 music video shows Childish Gambino shirtless in an empty warehouse. Two gold chains hug his neck, an afro and thick facial hair hug his face. Gambino starts walk dancing to a sweet-sounding folk melody. He comes upon a man, head covered, sitting in a chair. Gambino pulls out a handgun, assumes a comical stance evocative of a Jim Crow caricature, and shoots the man in the back of the head. The gunshot transitions the sweet melody to a hard-thumping trap beat. As a man falls to the ground, Gambino faces the camera, holds the caricature pose, and raps, This is America. A child appears holding a red cloth. Gambino carefully lays the weapon on the cloth and dance walks away towards the camera. Two children carelessly drag the body away in the background as Gambino raps, This is America. Quote, Don't catch you slipping now. Look at how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. After a while, the thumping transitions back to the melody. A robed black church choir sings and sways. Gambino reappears, walk dancing in glee, till someone tosses him an automatic weapon. He guns down the church members in an unmistakable reference to the 2015 Charleston, South Carolina church shooting. The gunshots again transition the melody back to the thumping beat. Gambino raps. This is America. As the bodies are dragged away as he delicately lays the rifle on a red cloth again, held again by a waiting child. Is this America? Does America protect violence more than people? Is gun life America? Were the Trump supporters violently occupying the U.S. capital, America? Was all that violence, all that anti-democratic sentiment, who Americans partially are? Did more than 74 million Americans vote for Trump? Do 77% of those voters believe what he believes, what these insurrectionists who sacked the Capitol believe, against all evidence to the contrary, that the election was stolen from Trump and that he actually won? Is all that happened on January 6th part of America? It is. They are. All of what we saw at the U.S. Capitol is part of America. But what's also part of America is denying all of what is part of America. Actually, this denial is the essential part of America. Denial is the heartbeat of America. Since 2018, when This Is America unpacked three words used to cloak persisting violence, I've been arguing that the heartbeat of racism is denial. There is a regular structural denial that racial inequity is caused by racist policy, and whenever the American and whenever an American engages in a racist act and someone points it out, the inevitable response is the sound of that denial. I'm not racist. It can't be I was being racist, but I'm going to try to be anti racist. It's always I'm not racist. No wonder the racist acts never stop. What is the inevitable response of Americans to tragic stories of mass murder, of extreme destitution, of gross corruption, of dangerous injustice, of political chaos, of raw attack on democracy within the very borders of the United States, as we witnessed at the U.S. Capitol? 
This is not who we are. From this bipartisan perspective, America is existentially nonviolent, prosperous, orderly, democratic, just, and exceptional. America is apparently not like those so-called banana republics, which are existentially violent, poor, chaotic, tyrannical, unjust, and inferior, as Republicans and Democrats keep implying. America is apparently not like those shithole countries, as Trump called them. To overcome Trumpism, the American people must stop denying that Trumpism is outside America. Trump is the heartbeat of American denial in its clearest form. He is America, shirtless and exposed, like Childish Gambino in the video. Trump is not fundamentally different from those elected officials saying, this is not who we are. He denies. They deny. The difference is the extremism of Trump's denial. While Americans commonly say, I am not racist, Trump says, I am the least racist person there is anywhere in the world. While Americans commonly say to those Trump supporters who attack the Capitol, you are not us, Trump says, you are very special. Trump's political opponents rage about the red meat he keeps feeding his base while starving them of truth. But when Republicans and Democrats say this is not who we are, whom are they speaking to? Are they speaking to swing voters? Do they believe that older white centrists can't handle the truth? Are they starving them of the truth too? Are they feeding white centrists the red meat of denial? Two groups of Americans are feeding and feeding on American denial. There are Americans like Trump who nonviolently and like his supporters violently rage and engage in the carnage at the U.S. Capitol in complete denial of the election results. And there are the Americans who during and after the carnage say this is not who we are in complete denial that the rioters are part of America. The white domestic terrorist who denies his own criminality and the American politician who denies that the terrorist is part of us both remain in the foreground of the American media, of American politics, taking up all our care and concern. Meanwhile, in the background, the violence is placed on red cloths as the victims of the carnage are carelessly dragged out of sight and mind. As Eddie S. Cloud Jr. powerfully says, Quote, this is us. In a fall 2020 survey, 54% of Americans said that their nation is the greatest in the world, with 80% of Republicans and 35% of Democrats expressing this sentiment. In January 2020, the majority of Americans said in a survey that the United States embodies the grandeur of gender equality, happiness, health consciousness, and public health. Nearly 4 in 10 Americans said that their nation promotes income equality. But America's actual standing in the world tells a different story on these issues and others. The life expectancy of Americans is shorter than for people in other rich countries that spend far less on health care. The U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate of any rich country. Police in the U.S. kill their fellow citizens at significantly higher rates than in any other rich country. The United States has the largest incarcerated population per capita in the world. 
the rate of gun violence here is significantly higher than in any other wealthy nation. Only Israel has a higher rate of poverty among rich countries than the United States. Among G7 nations, the United States has the highest rate of income inequality. The U.S. ranks second only to Greenland in the highest rate of suicides by firearm. And most of those suicides are by white men. This is America, just like the insurrection in the capital is America. We need to see this reality with clear eyes, because nothing has held back America more than its denial. Nothing has caused more human carnage than American denial. If you can look at the carnage and respond, that's not us, then you'll consider it to be an anomaly. Humans, like nations, are not going to perform radical surgery on cancers that they don't think are part of them. Instead of seeing white supremacists as the greatest domestic terror threat of our time, too many see them as marginal actors, thus the marginal response to the carnage. Thus, the carnage continues. Police violence, instead of being seen as the unnecessary killing of three Americans every single day, is dismissed as a product of bad apples. Thus, the marginal response to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd's killings. Thus, the carnage continues. Voter suppression, instead of being seen as corroding American electoral politics, is dismissed as a rogue GOP operation. Thus, the marginal response to electoral carnage. Thus, the carnage continues. Economic inequality and mass poverty, instead of being seen as the inevitable results of racial capitalism, are dismissed as glitches in the economy. Thus, the marginal response to economic carnage. Thus, the carnage continues. Sexism, racism, homophobia, and anti-Semitism, instead of being seen as systemic and pervasive, are dismissed as being carried out only by those individual red hats and rednecks. Thus, the marginal response to the carnage. Thus, the carnage continues. And on and on, with climate change and pipelines and transphobia and assault rifles and Me Too, and on and on. The carnage continues. We must stop the heartbeat of denial and revive America to the thumping beat of truth. The carnage has no chance of stopping until the denial stops. This is not who we are must become in the aftermath of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. This is precisely who we are. And we are ashamed. And we are aggrieved at what we've done, at how we've let this happen. But we will change. We will hold the perpetrators accountable. We will change policy and practices. We will radically root out this problem. It will be painful. But without pain, there is no healing. And in the end, what will make America true is the willingness of the American people to stare at their national face for the first time, to open the book of their history for the first time, 
not the book they gave you in school. The real book, the real truth. And see themselves for themselves. All the political viciousness. All the political beauty. And finally, right the wrongs. Or spend the rest of life of America trying. This can be who we are. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can go to YouCan'tBeNeutral.com to find all the back episodes and those links to make a donation or to send me a message. You can listen to this and all my other podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. <laughs>